Today, the Loopcast follows the money. President Biden is whipping up a $105 billion aid package, $61 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. But at least he put $13 billion towards the southern border, right? Well, we read the fine print and we were shocked by what we found. We go deeper down the paper trail to find that even Catholics are involved in the hole at our southern border. A Catholic restaurant owner in Ohio had staff walk out after posting a sign opposing a radical abortion amendment. We cover his bold stand and the reality of politics dominating commerce over the past few decades. Josh can't stand Julia Roberts. Erica might join an Icelandic female strike, and I'm just trying to keep it all together. All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Erica and Josh, and we, as always, have a full show for you today. First, we're going to start with a phrase you'll hear often this episode, follow the money. Now, the United States government, specifically President Biden, has said he's sending money to a border. Um, We are here to talk about which borders specifically, how the money breaks down, and you might be a little bit surprised when we get to the end of the money trail. So, Erica... We have $105 billion requested for multiple different initiatives. Could you break down how much of that 105 is going to each initiative and, you know, the end point? What's a little surprising about that? Yeah, so we have $105 billion ask. This is a supplemental budget request from President Biden. And uh, it's it's obviously following on the Hamas-Israeli war that's going on. $61.4 $61.4 billion to Ukraine to continue the war effort there, another $14.3 billion to Israel, and we have uh, only $7.4 billion going to the poor Indo-Pacific, uh, so I guess China's not really a concern here, and $10 billion in humanitarian efforts that's going to be split between Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and other places. The list goes on and on. If you've been keeping track, though, we still have about $50 billion to go. And that's going to go to the defense industry, so the United States defense industry. And as our friend uh, Tom McCluskey, who's our great lobbyist on the Hill, um, this is basically grift. This is the war machine. This is pouring money into uh, the war efforts uh, all around the world. And what we've heard from congressmen, including J.D. Vance, our good friend from Ohio, is that this grouping of the Ukraine uh, supply, the Ukraine humanitarian aid in Israel all into one, it's an effort to shove through Congress at a time when pro-Israeli sentiment's really high, this unpopular pro-Ukraine funding. Ohio Senator J.D. Vance has a proposal I think makes a lot of sense. He says... Let's debate this separately. Should we have aid for Israel? Should we have aid, even more aid for the you know for Ukraine? But the machine, the swamp in Washington D.C. wants to combine it all together. Super unpopular things like you know the war in Ukraine with support for Israel, which is pretty popular, and then they even throw in a few you know a few dollars and cents here on the border just to say hey we're doing something about the border guys. Then they wrap it all together. And they just give us this, you know, kind of crap sandwich and expect us to support it. And the thing that really repulses me the most about this, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, he basically said that the war in the Ukraine was very good for our economy. He's like, don't worry. It's, you know, I'm paraphrasing him. It's not, it's not like American uh, members of the military are dying. It's, it, you know, we're not dying, but it's, but we're supporting it and all this money that's being spent on it is, you know, we're, we're building up this war machine in all these districts across the country and that's good for the economy. Right. It's jobs factory. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a jobs program basically, which is, I think the most repulsive thing uh, I've, I've heard. And, and the thing is like war should always be a last resort. Maybe it's necessary. I don't think so, but like make your case for why the war in Ukraine is, is, is necessary. And if it is, then, okay, we roll up our sleeves, we help them out, right? But don't give us, hey, it'll be good for your, the economy. It's like, what? No, it's not good for the economy. It's good for 
you know, defense contractors, but not for us. Right. So like what I would like to see is what J.D. Vance is talking about. Congress hasn't had the opportunity. We haven't even declared war in Ukraine, right, because we're not at war with Russia. This hasn't even been a debate on the floor of Congress. It's just what which is what America, what our Constitution designed the Congress for. They're the only ones who should be declaring war after debate and for, as you said, Josh, for just cause, just reason. And as J.D. Vance is pointing out here, there's no off-ramp. We have no off-ramp in Ukraine. We have no even goal. And Mitch McConnell comes along and says, oh, well, this is basically our, you know, brave new, our great new deal to get us out of recession. We're just going to build up the war machine as a, as a budget policy. And Americans should be happy about this. And he even said in the interview, he said, Ukraine is fighting Russia for us. They're di- he didn't say they're dying, but this was the implication. Those soldiers are dying. Those civilians, those families are suffering. Americans should just be like, well, it's not me. It's not my kids. And it's boosting our economy. That, like you said, Josh, it was just it was a disgusting moment um, from the swamp. Just really, really, really disappointing. To frame, I think the frustration of a lot of people is so we're talking about sixty one point four billion dollars now to continue this draining of the Russian treasury. Essentially, uh, you tack on fourteen point three billion for Israel, which JD Vance is arguing you know could be strategically different. But regardless, we're talking about. Uh, the problem of these packages is there's a lack of specific language uh, to actual actually execute where this funding goes and how it actually works. So the biggest red flag that I'm exactly. looking at here is $13.6 billion to specifically boost border agents, install new fentanyl detection machines, and increase staffing. But when you do break down that 13.6, it only ends up being about $11.8 million to combat trafficking. Uh, $3.5 billion right. for refugee assistance. At is, our border. Okay, so we're getting back mm-hmm. to our border right now. If we're talking about there's only that little of a breakdown for, I, I think, uh, a very conservative estimate is we have nearly 4.9 million illegal aliens have crossed our border since President Biden has taken office. I've seen figures as high as seven. These are coming straight from the CP- CBP. Like these are these are government trackers right. that are we're talking about here. Yeah, and I just want to give a sense of scale to this number. I looked this up this morning. So 25 of the 50 United States have populations of less than 5 million people. So we're talking an entire state has moved into the union <laughs> uh, since against, Biden. Against our order. will. Against our will. Right. This is this is just flooding across the southern border. And so when you look at numbers like we can we can do 60 billion for Ukraine, we can do 14 billion. Janet Yellen, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, she got on the Sunday shows and said, oh, sure, we can we can do a war. We can do all these. We can afford all of this. Right. And you're like, but we can't afford to secure our own. Right. Border? What? Right. Well, this is what it gets to. It's like we have this philosophy in this country that's rampant, that we are an endless treasury like mm-hmm. we are the atm for the world you know and we need to remember something that this this government is wet, massively in debt we are in debt so w- this congress wants us to borrow billions of dollars from china to to give aid to uh, ukraine and israel okay maybe we should do that I don't know. Doesn't seem like the best idea, especially since we're kind of going broke as it is. But you're going to spend all that money on that and you can't secure our southern border. Yeah. Josh, I want to I wanted to ask because I was reading. Uh, we'll talk about him a little bit more later. But Constantine Kissin, uh, the trigonometry guy, was talking about this back in the 80s and 90s, how Americans thought about immigration, he argued, was different than how the vision for immigration in America has kind of evolved to today. So the difference being in the 80s and 90s, we were looking for people to enter the country that were either skilled laborers. Uh, we needed the the people to fill those roles. And then today, it's let everyone in. Diversity is our strength. If you say anything against that, xenophobic or bigotry. Is that is there a weight to that argument in your eyes? Oh, it's true. I mean, Bernie Sanders used to be very much in favor of immigration restriction because he understood. And he's, you know, a socialist. He understood that an influx of millions of people of low-skilled labor 
would have a dampening effect on the lower middle class. And that's that's still true, by the way. But they realized, wait a minute, because we have birthright citizenship, any of those immigrants who have children become citizens of the United States, and they're almost surely going to become members of the Democratic Party. So it makes sense for them. They're playing. The, eventually, they figured out, let's play the long game here. Bill Clinton gave a speech during the State of the Union address where he was, you know, railing against illegal immigration. I mean, that's not even that long ago. I was in high school. I mean, this is not like forever. Okay, I I remember this, and not just because I'm a nerd, you know. And so, the Democratic Party was against, you know, illegal immigration. But then finally, you know, they again they realized, wait a minute, now any immigrant that comes to this country illegally, if their children are born in this country, chances are they'll start voting for Democrats. So just a couple of decades down the line. And this really became a thing when the book came out. What's um, the matter with Kansas? I think it was. But it just talks about like uh, demography is destiny. And that's when the left figured out, wait a minute now, all these immigrants have been pouring into this country. Eventually they're going to have children. They're all going to vote Democratic and we're going to change everything. And that had a massive eye-opening effect on both political parties. Democrats are like, wait a minute, we need to be super pro-immigration. And they did. And they also realized we're going to win. We're, we're going to be this majority forever. Like conservatives are never going to win again because, you know, as if Hispanics keep voting in these numbers, you know, because they vote similarly to blacks in this country, blacks are even more so 95, five, 95% to 5% Democrat and Hispanics are like eight or 80 to 85%. They're like, it's just a, it's just a matter of time. They will run everything. And when, when Obama won in 08, it, everyone just thought this is going to begin 30 years of, you know, dominance. Yeah. And I think that that's playing out in the way that Biden is spending, is proposing that they spend money toward the immigration issue. He said repeatedly uh, throughout his presidency, that immigration is more about policy than funding. And what he means there is it's more about massaging the policy to allow these people to come and integrate into, well, not even integrate, just enter American society than it is about funding deportations and stopping and building up the border security. And it's sort of a non, it, it's like a non, it doesn't mean anything as a phrase because the way you budget is your policy, right? So the way you spend money reflects your policy, and again, I'll, I'll, Tom McCluskey, who analyzed this whole $105 billion package for us, he said, basically, what we're looking at here in terms of the way the immigration money is allocated is an invasion acceleration fund. Because what the, what the funds do in Biden's ask, it's not to build a border wall, it's not to uh, increase deportations, it's not to empower ICE, but it's, it's funneling money away from current immigrations and customs enforcement, ICE deportation plans and funneling that billions of dollars to the resettlement of migrants in the United States. And there's another, there's a wonderful interview with Senator Haggerty from Tennessee uh, on Morning Wire that you can go listen to as well. He's analyzed the bill pretty thoroughly or the proposal really thoroughly. And like you were saying, Josh, that's totally in keeping with this vision of, no, we want to bring all these people into Texas. We want to push Texas purple, push Texas blue. Um, this is it's part of a the long term game, which the left is very good at. They played it in education, they've played it in the medical field, and they've played it in terms of our southern border. Yeah, the left has done the long march through all the institutions and for too long Republicans and conservatives are just like, hey, as long as I make money my business, I don't have to worry about anything. And it's like the wake up thing I think is important here because so Constantine Kissing comes back and again he talks about how uh, there's two visions uh, the fundamental to a leftist view of the world and a more naturally conservative view of the world uh, the first vision is the unconstrained vision which means we only have to say the right things enact the right policies spend enough money and we will basically solve all of our social ills we could create a utopia essentially and then there's the constrained vision. People who see things this way believe that most political and social problems will never be solved and that they can only be managed through trade-offs. And the uh, event that we all witnessed uh, happening in Israel where, you know, basically within overnight, people that were maybe very liberal saw that 
people hopped over a border and just massacred a thousand, couple thousand Jews. Massacre is not even doing it justice. I mean, it was like one of the worst terrorist acts we've seen in a long time. A lot of people that maybe shared that liberal view of, well, we can all just kind of exist together. Get maybe along. even in America now we're like, whoa, there's Palestinians shouting death to who I am. Like, how is this liberal utopia going to play out when people share that such a violent view of the other person or, for example, the other way around? So I think in terms of immigration, now seeing these shocking numbers, like, who are we letting across our border? It's no longer this like hardline conservative view that we need to shut it down. I think there's going to be more moderates that are like, wait a second, we're seeing what's going on in the world. We don't know who's coming across our border. This might be time for a change. Right. This was a great essay um, by Constantine Kissin, and he called it The Day the Delusions Died. Uh, it's in the free press, and we'll link it in the show notes. But I, I think what he's pointing out about immigration sort of being a wake-up call, like we're reaching this tipping point, he's saying, where people who have this utopian vision of human nature that, um, that you, like you said, Tom, through policy, through social engineering, we can just cure the world of sin, basically, cure the world of all suffering. Um, that's, that is showing itself when the rubber hits the road and reality hits. We're seeing it with Democratic mayors and governors saying, wait, we can't take any more immigrants, right? Like New York, we're seeing it with, um, with the, just sort of hold the brakes. Like this isn't working out Chicago. And this, that this unconstrained vision of the human utopia building the Tower of Babel to the skies. Having a robust understanding of, uh, of history and human nature, you look at the Roman Empire as has been a trend. Uh, they were. Do you think of the full, Roman Empire often? Uh, yes, sometimes, but they were, they were full <laughs> of human error. And what's interesting about the immigration conversation when you think about the two visions is it's often progressive Catholics that are the ones banging you over the head if you want to suggest that a sovereign nation should close its borders and have regular, like regulated immigration. No, no, no. It's not just not, I mean, not even the expression close your borders, just have a border. Like we're not, we're not saying we're not going to let anyone else in. We're just saying we'd like to know who comes in and you need permission to come in. But that just means you have a border. My point is again, follow the money. The Catholic church Catholic Charities are, I think, the 13th largest charity in the country right now in terms of money. It's, it's a couple billion dollars. Mm-hmm. There is Correct. a lot of money trading hands at the border, and Catholic Charities is directly involved. And not even to, to go over all of the ills that come with absolute r- rampant illegal and unchecked uh, immigration. A lot of times we talk about cartels, we talk about sex trafficking. If you've seen The Sound of Freedom, you know what I'm talking about here. Horrible, horrible, inhumane acts going on at the border. And it's, it's interesting to hear the argument from progressive Catholics to just blanket say, welcome the stranger, but not to have any, not to go beyond that at all with nuance in terms of, well, what are we actually contributing to at the border if we're just accepting whoever comes across? That's not really good for anyone. Um, I actually think there needs to be a real critical lens, not just applied to, you know, this aid package we're talking about, but to Catholic, Catholic involvement at the border is, is a huge problem to me morally. What are we contributing to? Well, you know, and that's why we wanted to get information about, you know, what government agencies, whether it's the Health and Human Services or the Department of Homeland Security, what communications that they've had with, you know, Catholic Charities. And just to find out, you know, what is this arrangement? Because we're not getting a whole lot of clarity from the bishops on exactly what's going on here with our involvement on the border as the Catholic Charities. So we just thought, hey, you know, and we asked uh, each of these agencies, could you just provide us the emails that you've sent, which is something that we can do through the Freedom of Information Act. It's not like we're acting, asking for any national security secrets here. We just want to know what's going on and, and, and put a little sunlight on this. And these agencies have been stonewalling and stonewalling. And so we decided it, you know, it, unfortunately, this, we're, we're used to this because they do this all the time. They did it with us when we're trying to get documents about what happened with the FBI and the Richmond memo about that was targeting Catholics. So when it came to this kind of stuff, we wanted to get to the bottom of it. And they're just like, well, you know, they're stonewalling. And so we've actually put forward a lawsuit, you know, to to say, hey, we want a judge to tell these agencies, you have to comply with federal law 
and you have to give a, th this information that is due to us because it's the Freedom of Information Act. And by the way, when this came out, the Catholic lefties, what did they say? Oh my gosh, Catholic vote, right-wing crazies are Sue's suing nuns. Catholic charities. <laughs> what? We didn't sue the nuns. We didn't sue Catholic charities. We're suing the federal government. Get over it, You're people. welcome. But, but the, the fact of the matter is you're right, Tom. The United States federal government is, is funneling billions of dollars to Catholic charities and to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And Catholics are like, um, I don't know, before I put a few more dollars and cents into the rice bowl that's at church, you maybe want to tell me what the heck is going on here. And, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest problem that conservatives have had in general with the welfare state is um, that the government wants more clients. Like, they don't want to solve the problem of poverty. You know, it's almost in their own interest to have their budgets be bigger every year. Like, there's a need. We, we got more need. We got to help more people. Like, if they actually did everything they wanted to, then, well, then they would have no, no job left and the agency would be shut down. Increasing the population that's utterly dependent on the government is in their interest. And Whether so, they're nefarious about it or not, yeah, it's just so, you know, and the fact is, like, when Donald Trump had done so much, I think, to, to slow the amount of illegal immigration at the border, was that good? I think so. I think that meant less people were trying to make this trek through Central America and through Mexico. They weren't being mistreated or sexually assaulted by coyotes. I think that's a good thing. We should go back to that. Doesn't that Agreed. make sense? And speaking of accountability, we have uh, an initiative here at Catholic Vote called the Catholic Accountability Project. Not only were we looking into the border, as Josh success suggested, but we were looking into accountability when it comes to the church's reaction to COVID. And when I say this was a fascinating report, I am underselling it. I think me, along with many other Americans, were very frustrated with how the church responded to the coronavirus. And so we have this podcast called The Receipts because every Catholic deserves the truth on this. Absolutely check it out. It's one of the coolest projects I think we've been a part of in a long time. We're going to have the link in the show notes. Uh, you can get it uh, right there uh, and then you can subscribe. It's going to be anywhere where you get audio. It is only uh, audio only. So uh, pop it on during a car ride. Pop it on after you're done listening to us if you'd like to. Fascinating. So go check that one out. Yeah, actually, and the thing about this, I read this report you know, uh, over, over a month or two ago, because it, you know, I worked with the researcher and editors and all this stuff. And I had a chance to look at this and I read the report and I thought it was very enriching. And now, you know, as that happens, right. So I read about it three or four weeks before it comes to the press, before you guys get a chance to see it, the, the listeners. And as we we're talking about this, we like, this is such a good report. It's so much information though. We got to break it up into little pieces. And then, you know, the thought occurred to us, you know, hats out to my cohort here, another beautiful, uh, bald man named Josh Reznicek. <laughs> it's a trend. He said, he said, uh, what if we put, made this into an audio podcast? And so I had a chance to listen to it, you know, just the other night. And I got to say, um, uh, I thought it was outstanding. I mean, really it just, well produced, you know, really well done, just well done. And I think you guys will enjoy it. So, uh, go check out the receipts podcast. Uh, receiptspodcast.com. You'll love Amen. it. So I uh, came across the desk here. We have Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, who has just been put up uh, for the next speaker vote. He is the the latest to be sacrificed at the the altar of leadership here at the House GOP. Joshua's really wanted to talk about this one. What, what should the audience know about Mike Johnson? Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. Before he served, in, he's only been in Congress since 2017. So unlike a lot of these creatures in the swamp have been there for like, you know, millennia. <laughs> uh, he, he's only been there for about six years or so. Before he got elected to Congress, uh, Mike Johnson was an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom, which is an organization dedicated to promoting religious liberty. And so, and even in Congress, he stayed true to that. Uh, he did. He, he was in, involved in a rally at the outside of the United States Supreme Court when they had oral arguments on an important religious liberty case back in December that we won. And uh, he's just been outstanding. Obviously, solid on life and marriage. You know, Congress had passed recently, you know, last year that 
uh, fake marriage bill. He obviously voted against that. Uh, no, Mike Johnson's uh, truly one of us. He's not a Catholic, but he's been a big friend, uh, ally and friend to Catholics. Uh, he and Jim Jordan both are on that weaponization uh, committee. And Johnson and Jordan have been calling out FBI Director uh, Chris Ray because, the, you know, the FBI made it seem like, oh, this one rogue agency in Richmond, uh, yeah, that's terrible. And it's in fact, other uh, FBI field offices like in Los Angeles and Seattle were contributing to that memo. So it wasn't just a one-off thing. So, and then Mike Johnson, he actually put forward legislation last year uh, basically to stop the sexualization of children. That's, and the bill would make it, would, again, this is, a, finally we're starting to get some Republicans that are understanding how to use power. Now, this hasn't become, uh, this bill hasn't become law yet, but it should. And the point of this would be like, oh, I'm sorry, is your school or library getting federal funding? Then maybe you shouldn't have porno books in your school or your library, like common sense stuff. So Mike Johnson is uh, going to be a uh, is and will continue to be a great ally for Catholics. So is is the argument that he just doesn't have enough enemies at this point because he is so new that he could kind of make the hardline conservatives happy, but then also more of the moderates that have been tanking people like Jim Jordan? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, when we had these first few rounds and go rounds on who should become the speaker, um, the the eight, uh, seven or eight conservatives who kind of blew the thing up, they wanted Jim Jordan. And so then you had about 10 liberals who were like, well, Never. I'm not going to let the guy you wanted to be in there. You know, so you get the retribution thing. And then the liberals are like, hey, let's put up Tom Emmer. He's from Minnesota. Uh, he supported the uh, fake marriage bill. He's terrible. Mm -hmm. um, I confess I voted for him 13 years ago. He wasn't that bad then. You. I'm not going to let you live it down. Mm. Well, he only lasted uh, four hours, I think, right? He was only the yeah, candidate for an afternoon. Smoked him out. Uh, Trump didn't want him. Yeah, well, then you had 26 conservatives like, this guy's terrible on just about everything. Yeah. Like, why would I vote for him? And so right. each side basically got to torpedo the other side's favorite pick. And so then we're getting closer to, a, you know, a guy who I think is a little bit more consensus. He's been uh, elected, you know, the, I think it's called the vice chairman of the Republican policy committee, you know, inside the house. So it's like, they've all kind of voted for him before. And uh, I think this is going to be the ticket finally. So. Yeah, he's very level-headed. I definitely appreciate uh, when I see clips from him. It just seems like, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for how he conducts himself. So I could see why he would be the one to pass through. But so we'll keep you updated on that. Uh, we actually have this is more lifestyle. This is actually someone emailed in about this. Wants to remain anonymous, but you know who you are. Uh, she sent us uh, a alarm on this restaurant in Milford, Ohio. So in Ohio, uh, there's this. Big election coming up, and Catholic Vote has been very involved in this. Very, very, very involved. Basically, Ohio issue one, if passed, would uh, enshrine the right to abortion in Ohio, making it legal up to birth uh, and allowing minors to get these procedures without consent. Uh, this also has without parental consent, and it has a lot of implications in terms of transgender surgeries as well. In terms of parental consent, it's a really, it could really be a detrimental bill to Ohio. And so, if you don't know already, vote no. On Ohio, it's simple enough. We're trying to get the word out as much as possible in Ohio. You do not want this in your state. So we got an email in from someone uh, about a restaurant called Copper Blue. Uh, it's an American-style restaurant in Milford, Ohio, and it just faced staffing issues, quote-unquote, after posting a sign opposing Ohio Issue 1. And I have a quote from the owner. Shout out. His name's Brian Arlinghouse. Uh, if you haven't uh, and you're in the area, go check out his restaurant. We really respect his stand here. He says, in quote, when it comes to this issue, I believe the issue is more than just a political issue. He added that he is a Catholic and he does not believe abortion is good for women. Quote, of course, this was picked up by a very liberal news outlet in Cincinnati uh, that was very happy to stick it in his face that there was staff that walked off the job. Uh, there's nasty reviews that came in from all over the country out of state, of course, which is just such an abuse of the system. But there, of course, has been some grassroots support on the other side. With this restaurant in Ohio, kudos to them for doing this. Like, what a concept. Like, let's, you know, let's, um, I don't know, a, a restaurant, you want more customers? Like, maybe we should be against the murdering of babies. Like, this reminds me of one pro-lifer, I forget his name, brought up the point that 
um, you know, Hugh Hefner, Mr. Playboy, right? He used to have the, in the 1960s, the Playboy philosophy where he was trying to say, oh, it's not just a magazine for men to lust at. I'm a philosopher. And he's going to philosophize on all the issues of the day. And they, they would have these big arguments on all, you know, overpopulation, uh, you know, is, is um, you know, it, all the LGBT stuff. They were talking about that long before anybody else, obviously. And then abortion was something that was discussed too. And there's letters going back and forth. And there's a lot of people who had lust after this magazine, but they w weren't quite willing to favor killing babies. So they go back and forth on this. And some finally, the last letter that was sent in was one that he really couldn't refute. It's like, listen, if you support abortion, you are killing future customers. Josh, what's the what's the difference to you? Of course, like I want to say, like shout out to Brian. I respect the stand. Go patronize his restaurant. Oh, but, absolutely, God bless him. But what's been happening in terms of activism, in terms of business? I think of Bud Light. I think of Target. I think of. Uh, examples where places have done it and people have been really upset about it. What's the difference in your mind between, you know, small local mom and pop making political statements versus big mega corporation, you know, Starbucks putting rainbow flags everywhere you can see? Hmm. I think a lot of it's accountability, actually. I know Josh is going to, he is, he's going to jump in here with a great comment, right? But I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> so I think, I think a lot of it's accountability and it, there's a huge difference between the head honcho at Bud Light, the head marketing lady deciding, uh, we're gonna we're gonna showcase and normalize trans fake women like Dylan Mulvaney and basically capitalize on their celebrity and make them even more of a celebrity by, you know, endorsing everything they're about so that they'll endorse our product. There's a big difference between Bud Light's marketing director and Brian at this, you know, local restaurant, worked really hard. And he's yeah, I know like well, you know, uh, you know, what would be the difference? What would be, you know, I think would be the difference is that the corporations and the left were the ones that started like the idea of politicizing commerce. Like, you know, this idea where we're all kind of different, but, you know, we'll put our differences aside, save that for the ballot box, save that for the newspaper. But when it comes to going to a hotel or going to a restaurant or buying coffee, you know, it's just, it's just business. And let's try to be friendly Americans. We all believe in the right to speech, I would assume. We all believe it, you know, in getting along well. So we don't want to, we don't want to weaponize, quote unquote, or politicize these relationships. The same reason why when it comes to Thanksgiving, you don't want to try to politicize that. Like, oh, this is a chance to tell my uncle that he's, he's a terrorist because he believes, you know, in, <laughs> in that, what the NRA stands for. It's also why we don't like it when, you know, they have like these multi-level marketing schemes, like, you know, what is it, the Amway or whatever, like I'm, I'm going to suddenly transform my, my friendships and my families into mm -hmm. a way of making money and I'll get them all to sell stuff. Mary Kay. You, I'm going to commercialize my friendships and my family. It's like, wait a minute now. I mean, I like, a, I like the free enterprise system. Don't get me wrong. But I don't want to commercialize my friendships. I don't want to commercialize my family. And, and therefore, I don't want every inner encounter I have where I have to go to the hardware store and buy some hammers or I want to get some groceries and to have the latest polished pro, you know, left wing thing that comes out of New York, you know, Madison Avenue. That's what I think what we're getting at. So You've had decades now of militant left wing, you know, sexuality, like the rainbow stuff and climate stuff and being pushed by these corporations. And so, like, if you're that restaurant owner, you're like, well, you know what? They're trying to kill babies here in Ohio. I hate this. It, if this is the new age, here's my sign. I'm, <laughs> I'm against murder. Call me crazy. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, give, I give kudos at, at him for the pushback. Right, exactly. And I think that's like the environment that we're living in is you do put out your sign. And I, I do think there is a like qualitative difference, though, in terms of the responsibility of these large corporations to, to deliberately stay more neutral because of the widespread influence they have and the fact that there is no accountability. Like, I can't. If, you, if your local coffee shop like mine decks out all over in rainbows every June, July, and August because they don't take them down. It's like Christmas, September, November, all, all of December, them. It's just yeah. always all rainbows. 
there's actually, you know, I know the owner, like she lives in my town. It's a small town. If there, there's an accountability there where if I so chose, I could literally talk to her about our differences. Whereas the Starbucks down the road, which actually had no rainbow flags this year, um, <laughs> they, I think, I, there's I think no intentionally, one to call, actually. right? Yeah, intentionally, because it wasn't good for business. Like they, there's no one to call. There's, there's no, but it has this massive social influence nonetheless because of the number of people that they touch every day through, through their presence in, in the culture and in the economy. And I, I do think that there is a, a difference that I can respect when a small business owner like Brian or on the other side of the political spectrum, my local coffee shop lady, like when they, they are taking more of a risk for something they actually believe in, they think. Um, and maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's just motivated because they think everyone in this part of Connecticut loves rainbows. So if I put out rainbows, I'll sell more coffee. But again, like I can respect someone doing that who's taking on a greater personal risk. They have a greater personal investment. I can't respect it when it's Bud Light mega corporation or Target or something like that. Erica, what you said about Starbucks kind of made me chuckle a little bit because I was in Washington, you know, a couple months ago with my my boys were doing a little little trip there. And we pop into a Starbucks about six blocks from the US Capitol, like so super liberal area, super liberal neighborhood, lots of money. And that Starbucks had gay rainbow flags everywhere. It was just crazy then i got then i went about we're traveling a little bit longer then we went about we were about 15 blocks away so not even that much further just just another mile down the street and now it was a black neighborhood that starbucks you would, <laughs> you'd have thought you were in you know alabama it was like what we're, don't don't you like rainbows here i don't understand it was pretty funny yeah, they not a they see principle. the polling. Yeah. <laughs> no, they see the polling over there. The African American community does not get down with the trans stuff. I'll tell you that much. Um, so yeah, final 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 thoughts on this. Like Brian, you're the man. I I do think it, it, like if I was in his position and I understood that protecting women and protecting children are at stake, I'd do the same thing. Yeah, and he said that in his state. You should everyone should go read the write up on Catholic Vote. I'll link it in the show notes. He wrote a letter to his employees who were like threatening to walk out, and many of them did walk out. He had to shut down for three days because of it. And he wrote a letter saying, look, the, to me, this is not a political issue. This is essentially, it's a humanitarian issue. It's a, it's a human rights issue. And he's like, I think if you all thought it was political, you wouldn't have such strong feelings about it as you do. Like He's like, you kind of proved my point yeah. that this is about women and children. And uh, yeah, so shout out to to Brian for taking a stand and entering the fray of of corporate activism, yeah. as it were, <laughs> in a small and, way. Uh, again, to Josh's point of dominance of left wing causes for the last three decades, uh, Peep, this wouldn't even be a news story if it was the other way around. I mean, no, there'd be no backlash. You wouldn't be afraid of rocks coming no, through your windows if you play pro abortion right. messaging. So remember, it's like, and, and and he actually put the sign out. So just think about the pizza place in Indiana that didn't put out any sign on the, you know, in favor of the religious freedom bill. They just were, you know, the, some reporter came out and go, well, what about a gay wedding? Would you, would you cater for them? He's like, well, probably, probably not. And then everyone just came on them, online mob. Yeah, there was an example of that too. Like uh, there's supposed to be a pro-life, uh, pro-life happy hour at a brewery. And the brewery had to issue a public statement and ask them to leave, like ask them to hold it somewhere else saying they didn't understand what was going on. And what frustrated me about this was- Don't buy beer from us if you think kids shouldn't be murdered. Exactly. But it wasn't even them. It was the fact that the people that did get rejected, I believe it was like a, it was Catholic involvement. It was a Catholic group. They said, oh, we don't want to, we don't want any press on it. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. And I was like, could you imagine for a second if that was flipped, if it was there's a pro-abortion happy hour happening and a business said, ah, we don't really want to wade into this, like do it somewhere else. The entire oh, country would, would be up. raining down, raining hell upon this this place and like there'd be change. And because these pro-lifers, yeah, because these pro-lifers have no spine, it's like, I, this is why no one takes us seriously. Like you need to make a problem about this because it's problematic. That's wrong what just happened to you. And the other side understands that. They understand the leverages of power. 
and they're going to absolutely pummel into oblivion this place and everything involved with it. And like until pro-lifers start acting that way, there's going to be no change. So shout out to Brian for leaning into this and like talking to a hostile reporter, making this a story. Like if anything, he's just generating more attention for the Ohio issue one crowd instead of just being like, "Eh, I don't want to make a big deal. Eh, I don't want to get into controversy. It's like, I'm just so sick of pro-lifers having no spine on that. Um, Anyway, and if you want to, if you want to have spine, uh, you can subscribe to the loop. Okay. So uh, if you're not at this point, this is a little bit crazy. Uh, You've been listening to us probably for a little while. I hope you know what the loop is. Uh, The loop is a morning newsletter that our team here puts together. We've been doing it for how many years, Josh? Five, six? Eight years, brother. Wow. Eight years of premier journalism. We're at half a million Catholics receiving it every morning. Saturday, we have a weekend edition. It's, I mean, you can look at some of the reviews. It's been seen as uh, one of the absolute go-to resources for people that are busy, people that are parents, Catholics that are just living out uh, their lives in public. So it's it's a great summary of all the news that we end up eventually talking about on here, but uh, absolutely a must get if you don't have it right now. Uh, so you can go to gettheloop.com right now if you're not on it. Uh, if you are on it, thank you. We appreciate you so much, but you can share it with someone if you do have it called gettheloop.com. Now it's going to be in the show notes as well. Uh, absolute must have for loopcasters. So Twilight Zone. There we go. Here goes the Twilight Zone. We're international again. The Polish elections were up earlier this week, and this is a Twilight Zone that's a tragic one, so I'm just going to put it out there. This was a major upset for the conservative party, which is called the Law and Justice Party, uh, known by its uh, Polish acronym PIS, but I think I'll just stick with conservative party. Uh, It has a platform based on the right to life, freedom, and equality, and they've been the dominant party in Poland since 2015. You know, I think Americans think of Poland, we think of John Paul II, we think of the fall of communism, this sort of uh, stalwart against European Union progressivism, a real stand-up, real wonderful country. And under the Conservative Party in the last eight years, Poland did, in fact, expand pro-life protections. Abortion is almost completely illegal in the country, one of the few European countries, um, except for the usual cases of rape, incest, and the life of the mother. But what we saw with this election was a massive wave. Uh, The opposition party did come to power um, in almost every seat uh, that they they ran for. And at the same time, we're seeing, you know, this is to me a symptom of this erosion of the Catholic faith in Poland. And there's some really uh, concerning polls coming out um, from Europe, from Poland itself. Uh, 84% of Poles still say they're Catholic, um, but only 42% say that they're practicing. And that includes... Sounds like they need to practice a little better. Well, they need to practice better. They haven't perfected <laughs> it yet. So don't think like, oh, Poland, perfect. Not at all. And the the more disturbing trend is that among the young people, 18 to 24-year-olds, only 23% are practicing. So it's an aging, faithful Catholic population. Uh, this is down from 69% in 1992, when John Paul II was sort of at the height after the fall of communism. Uh, another disturbing trend is that there's this uh, mockery of, the, of John Paul II, um, who's, you know, <laughs> I can't say enough about him. We covered him last week, right? But the number 2137, which is the hour of his death uh, on April 3rd, uh, 2005, that, uh, that number has become a sort of ironic code among the young people on social media, and they'll tweet it out or they'll attach it to their Instagram as a way of making fun of him. And it's, it's so twisted and just demonic, um, really disturbing trend coming out of Poland, sort of the secularization, the repaganization of, of the West comes to the land of Pope John Paul II and the Polish martyrs. You say demonic, too. It's like, it reminds me of how the Satanists will use the upside-down cross mm-hmm. because they hate Jesus. Yeah, the inversion of something good. You know, I get it, but it was St. Peter himself. That was a symbol of St. Peter for a long time because St. Peter thought he was unworthy to be crucified in the same ma- manner as the Savior. So he said, crucify me upside-down. And so that same thing, like, the, you know, it was actually April 2nd, he passed away, but, um, the number 2137, that t- is the exact time of his death. And like the moment of his death, 
is actually for us a great celebration. That is the that is the, his birth mm-hmm. into eternal it's his life. Triumph, those, his moment of triumph. Yeah, he had the that that comment, which you know I feel like too often today, Catholics and everyone who's a Christian believer needs to have a better appreciation for the afterlife. We just get so caught up in the mud and the division and the anger and and the sin of this world that we sometimes forget about you know the being in paradise with with a love that is all encompassing that God has right and so when John Paul II talked about you know like one of the last few words he said he's going to return to the house of my father and it was just like oh so beautiful. I love that language yeah, yeah and uh just to help illustrate that so god bless him yeah so. god bless him and pray for poland pray for his country yeah it's funny you're saying that dash we uh, i had a conversation with my kids last night around the table the younger ones got down we're running around and the the older so like the 10 to 15 year olds were still there and they're, they're kind of aware of what's going on in the world and uh my son's really into history and he goes, moms, are we in a cold war again? And uh, he's like, is there going to be a, a nuclear bomb? And I think a lot of people are worried about this, right, with China and Iran. And and I was just like, how do I? Because I, I try and keep them away from that. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, I'm not feeling yeah. well. It's the end of the day. Spaghetti and meatballs are everywhere all over the three-year-old seat. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. but the thing that came to my head was Pope John Paul II and this idea that we can't forget heaven. We can't forget um going to the house of the father. And so I tried to just share that with them. And what a, what a gift that was to a world. And for him, it was the cold war in Poland. He's calling people to remember the house of the father. And then now we can use that same encouragement with our own kids when they're feeling nervous or afraid of what's going on in the world. So anyway, thanks John Paul II. He was, he was truly an ambassador of hope. I think that's Mm -hmm. what so many Catholics today are clamoring for is a sense of hope. And if a man who you know, should have died so many times, like, you know, the assassination attempt, hit by a Nazi truck and left on the side of the street to die. There's something about his life. And, and despite, you know, the humiliations and the, and the smothering of both Nazi tyranny and communist oppression, he was able to find that joy, that spark, you know, that's what St. Peter always talked about. I always have a reason for the joy that is in you. And John Paul II had that, and he had it in a, in a world where, you know, full of despair, but very gloomy. And the United States in the 1980s was like sunshine and happiness, <laughs> and even though great. there were still a lot of things that, <laughs> still a lot of things, a lot of corners of our society that were Reagan, you know, under a yes. lot of problems. But I feel like, you know, we're smoking in a- indoors. <laughs> yeah. Molly Ringwald. Ugh. But I feel also like a lot Julia of Americans Robert. today feel that kind of, oh, not her. A lot of that dark, <laughs> darkness kind of. One of those women they tell us is very go- good looking and it's just oh. not. Po- Pogo and I had a throwdown over Julia Roberts yesterday. I just want to. I just watched my best friend's wedding. First off, bizarre movie. What a concept. Like, that's the problem. Have, that's the movie that movie. you have a problem with. Not the one that I've celebrates her being a hooker. Yeah. All right, we're going to need a Loopcast special yeah, on 80s and 90s movies. Just, I want to like, the generational divide here. Uh, is no, but just right. to button this up, you know, John Paul II is still an inspiration for a lot of us. We need, I think, lean into him, pray for his intercession for us right now, our country, our world. Uh, I'm less worried about World War III. I'm more just worried about like this, this kind of darkness that's coming over the West. Mm-hmm. We see you know, it in Poland. Yeah. Rampant ideologies that, you know, are fundamentally against human nature um, and, and causing so much division. And yeah, I think we need it. We need light. We need the lights of the gospel. One of my favorite uh, JB2 stories is uh, there was a Polish soccer game. Their professional soccer league was going on. And uh, when they heard that he had passed away, someone just ran out into the field and stopped the game. They're just, and they all took a knee on the field and prayed for uh, Pope John Paul II. The whole stadium was just arm in arm praying for Pope John Paul II. Like, it's hard to even imagine someone meaning that much to your country that that would happen like if, if like the nfl 
like something happened and it, it, someone meant so much to Americans that they stopped the game, got in a knee and all prayed. It's just like, it just brings me chills. So yeah, I think Poland cool. is in good hands. They have a pretty strong advocate above praying They need for to Poland, recover so. that, that moment, right? They so, do. Um, so hopefully a great saint comes out of Iceland. I'm sure there probably are some that I'm not thinking of right now, but Iceland is not as inspirational. So I just uh, came across this great headline. Uh, Iceland's prime minister joins thousands of women on strike. Now, if you wonder why they're striking, uh, the women in Iceland, the thousands of women across Iceland, including their prime minister, went on strike Tuesday as a part of a campaign pushing for greater gender equality in the country. Um, I don't know uh, how you get much higher than the prime minister, so but she holds the highest office and she's going to stop working for her country. I got some stats. <laughs> what, wait, what, what kind what, what, of strike is it? Not working. You don't work. Are you sure? Is that what it is? I yeah. mean, I've heard of these strikes. Okay. No, no. Oh, for I equal got stats, pay. Joshua. Okay. I got equal stats. pay one. All right. So. Some schools and libraries in the Scandinavian country did not open their doors on Tuesday. According to the Icelandic Public Service Broadcaster, RUV, only one branch opened in the entire island, uh, warning, warning readers that their own coverage may, had been reduced due to its female journalists participating in the strike. Now, this one was, was kind of shocking to me. Medical clinics in the capital area were only treating emergencies during the strike due to end at midnight local time. So they just were like, Wiped sorry, out. if you had something going that day. Uh, female employees who make up two-thirds of the staff in the Icelandic prime minister's office all participated on strike, <laughs> did not come into work on Tuesday. So two-thirds, you heard that. And then Is she discriminatory for, against men? I, 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 I just it sounds like it. I don't know what they're striking about. Doesn't sound like 50-50 to me. So uh, for 14 years in a row, Iceland has been ranked the best nation for gender oh equality gosh. by the World Economic Forum, which I'm not too keen on. And which said the country has closed the nine closed ninety one point two percent of the gender Whatever gap. Whatever that means. Now, guys, guys, really that much of the gender gap? I mean, they don't have oil rigs. How much? <laughs> <laughs> guys, Those what's, Viking what women are out like, on the oil rigs. I guess what screams that women should get more like close this gap than the prime minister herself just at, just taking off work? Like she said, she she didn't take a cabinet meeting is, in solidarity with these women. I what love it are when you can, doing here, guys? I love it when you can show solidarity by not working. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm really suffering for the cause. One. <laughs> not, not working so that you can get more money is such an interesting I'm going to roll out of bed in my pajamas at noon. Like, I'm going to say, uh, Icelandic brunch. men, Icelandic men are kind of sounding like simps right now, is all I got to say. <laughs> Come on, guys. Kind of simps. Well, it's like, what? again, this is one of those things where it's like, you know, the man in this case is, uh, you know, the corporations and they've managed to bamboozle feminists into thinking that, you know, they're not real unless they can get 50% of the jobs. Like, what, I mean, what? <laughs> no, that like, was actually a, uh, a government push to increase the tax base and lower salaries, but uh, we can yeah, get into exactly. that time. Wow. I mean, corporations it's, it's, are all it's on so board nefarious. Totally. Exactly. And then that puts men in a bad position. And it's like, again, pitting men and women against each other in this case, like the p most powerful woman in the country is now like pinning against men. I don't, who are you fighting against at this point? It's kind of like, I, I don't, I don't Eyes know. Off the ball. What is on, yeah. what is unavailable to you right now? If literally the most powerful position of the country is occupied by two thirds of women and the staff. Are they concerned too that, you know, um, that are, are they making sure that 50% of the men who are 50% of the workers who get, I don't know, pick up garbage. Are they, are they are women too? We're going to make sure that we get 50%. What about the people who em so. empty septic tanks? We're going to make sure that 50% of those people are, are women. Uh, I was going to say 50% of men can't get pregnant, but I don't know what's going on. 50% of it men like. can't get pregnant. Wouldn't well, that be hundred percent like, you know, of men can't get pregnant? Well, Pogo? his well, joke is that Erica, you know, everything's got to be equal, right? Oh, everything's got to right. be equal. I get the joke And now. in certain, certain Sorry, circles. I guess that it. means that men need to get more car crashes too, just to even things out. <laughs> oh, hit, hit the curbs. Ouch. Dang, we're getting, <laughs> we're getting in bad territory now. Let's move on. <laughs> shout, shout, out to, uh, <laughs> shout out to my female co-host, Erica. Hey, Thank you for represent. showing up for work today. You're welcome. If Erica doesn't show up <laughs> to the podcast, it's actually because on strike. she's striking. She's on strike for more airtime. <laughs> Uh, because the two men are taking too much They're of it. She needs that it all solid third. That's 
I love yeah, you guys. So. I love you guys. Look, I am more than happy to let the men pick up the garbage and all that. So, <laughs> right actually, <laughs> because Erica is so amazing and smart, and it, it's really it is fair. It is. It takes two us men to go against that's Erica. Right. She's that's right. That's I'm a heavyweight. What can so I amazing. say? That's right. And there was a there was a borderline a revolt. What are you? One hundred eight pounds. I was a little extra cute uh, with the teasing the episode. I said Erica might have gotten fired, and we did have some people like, "Ooh, Erica might have yeah. gotten fired." <laughs> some some interest. Hey, so tease it, Josh. Your uh, your twazo. So they say one of the first casualties in war is the truth, and that's definitely the case here with the conflict going on in the Middle East. Um, in the New York Times on October seventeenth, had a headline that said Israeli strike kills hundreds at hospital. Palestinians say, wow, that's kind of interesting. It turns out it was actually that rocket. The evidence indicates that that rocket came from Palestinian fighter positions. So actually it wasn't even the Israelis that did that. It, might, it was friendly fire in this case. Here's what the, uh, on, you know, a week later, the New York times kind of meepishly is like, um, well, it seems that our reporting, quote, relied too heavily on claims by Hamas. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. That's what they said. <laughs> Dog. Now, Matt That's Lewis tough. is a uh, never Trumper. He's not, he's not really a conservative anymore, but he goes, he's good on this. He's attacking the media. He's like, sit with that for a minute. <laughs> you know that old reporter's maxim, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> well, if that's true, what you, what should you do when a terrorist organization tells you something? I don't know. You check maybe it out. Maybe verify it. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't just run it at face value. I mean, talk about a Twilight Zone. So. Unbelievable. I mean, at least it wasn't a conservative Christian. They changed their headline like three they times, I think, They changed right? the headline. They did not draw attention to it. Here's what, here's what made me mad about this. There were real world consequences after the New York Times published that headline. It took them a week to acknowledge it. They haven't even apologized for it. But there were there was a, a synagogue. And it's not just a headline. It was the headline on the outside of the newspaper. It was the headline. And it was picked up by everyone. I mean, Axios quoted it. Politico was quoting it. Like it was it was just it took off. It was in all of the the nightly news shows were like this happened. And it was Israel and 500 people died in the hospital. And there were riots. And the New York Times, meanwhile, takes a week to like write. It's, it's not even a correction. It was an editor's note at the end of the story. It was like, editor's note. Earlier, you know, depictions of this event relied too heavily on Hamas. Like So, so what, Hamas called up your reporter and was like, this happened. And you were like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, let's just publish it. Like, what was the process? The thing is. That's the thing is when when something when a headline that you hear whether it's true or not when it is too comforting to your own what they call priors what you already think must be going on you got to make sure you check it and that's a that's a lesson for everybody Everyone. actually right. like when you hear something like oh my gosh I can't believe what Biden just did or you know whatever just say hold on a second now. I have to be a little bit discerning here because, boy, that sounds like that could be true. That totally seems like what that guy's up to. But you still got to double check it. That's what we try to do, you know, with the loop, too. So got to make sure, you know, hey, man, not, not like, why haven't you covered this story? I heard it from this website over here. Like, well, I'm not sure that's true. So we want to check it out first. Could I substitute in a better headline from the Babylon Bee? Yeah, please. Lighten this up. Uh CNN blames the fog of war for errant reporting on Gaza bombing, Russia collusion, Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Hunter's Laptop, The Steele Dossier, Kyle Rittenhouse, Origins of COVID, and then it continued an article, please click for more. <laughs> the fog Trump of calling war. Charlottesville neo-Nazis, fine people, COVID-19 vaccine effectiveness, Bubba Wallace garage news, Trump telling people to inject themselves with bleach, BLM riots being mostly peaceful. Joe Rogan identifying thing. as a horse. Yeah, all of it. It was the fog of war, guys. Justice for Juicy. <laughs> it was the... <laughs> that was such a perfect article, man. Oh, thank you, Babylon B. Babylon, Babylon B. B has really just been killing it lately. That satire site. I, mean, I you know, people have asked us if you try to do satire, it's not actually as easy as you as you think it is. Satire is is tough. 
it's it's one thing to say something funny in conversation. Ah, people laugh. Satire is difficult, and they have been doing a great job. They've been killing it lately. Babylon B. <laughs> yeah, for real. So, what does this episode, Josh? You, you don't want me to do the reviews anymore? Or what's up? <laughs> I mean, it's good. Come on, man. <laughs> we got to mix it up. <laughs> mix it up a little bit. Like, hey, have you guys shared this with your you know friends oh, yeah, and family? That's a good one. We should we should head out. Go with to loopcast.org and listen to these episodes. Are great. Send the link you know? to your friends. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Share, Share us the joy. 400 reviews, though, because I am watching. <laughs> <laughs> and 400 watching. is a sweet number. Uh, I We got accused of being, dude, we got accused of being woke. How many burner accounts does your mom <laughs> have? A lot. We love you, Dan. But we had someone review uh, publicly saying that we were woke and that, Erica, you were Gen Z. They thought I was Gen so, Z. I'm like Taylor Lorenz. Congrats. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Lorenz is older than me, by the way. And she's the the Gen Z expert for what was the outlet? Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, you could be you could be our Gen Z oh, expert. Sweet, so excited. Just gotta you I'm gotta study up on Gen some Z. slang and. Yeah. But she she loop she loop or the reviewer looped you in with me, so we both have ignorant takes and we're woke, but we're young. Sweet, so it's we excusable. Have, ah, we have the youth. So so you will learn from that old guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So learn from that old guy. Okay. So we sit at your feet. We'll try Josh. our best. <laughs> All right. We'll see if Erica even shows up next week. She might be on strike. All right. <laughs> But Loopcast, you want to help us out? Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, leave us a review, five stars. Would be appreciated if you want to talk to me, Loopcast at catholicflow.org. If you want to do the email, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, throw us a like, uh, subscribe there. It would be very helpful. Uh, and until then, we'll see you next Thursday. Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Fidelis, St. Thomas More. Pray for us. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>